electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The president is set to sign one of the biggest infrastructure bills in history today. We'll speak with the CEOs of Blink Charging and Siemens USA about the money, the plans, and the impact. Plus, cars, homes, and the supply chain. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on three key earnings tonight and tomorrow morning. Lucid, Home Depot, and Walmart. And we're also joined by a five-star tech fund manager who saw gains of 88% last year. What he's buying now is rates rise and why he's sticking with Tesla. But first to the markets, let's walk through that briefly today. A mixed day overall here after breaking a five-week win streak. The major averages are hovering less than 2% from all-time highs, so we're pretty close here with the Dow up 30. The S&P only down 1.5 points right now, and the Nasdaq underperforming again down 45 as the 10-year. I notice when I come back today, it is above 1.6%. Lots of action in the crypto space today. Look at Bitcoin crossing Back above 65,000 earlier, can't hang on to those levels. Ether around 4,600 on the dot, so that's adding 1.2% at the moment. Tesla is falling for the fifth time in six trading days as Elon Musk's stock sales continue. Quick look there, we see another drop of 4.4%, putting Tesla at 988, so that market cap probably close to going back below a trillion dollars if it hasn't already. And CrowdStrike is also among the biggest losers in the market today. Take a quick look at Crowd down 12.5% right now after being moved to underweight at Morgan Stanley with the firm mode noting a more difficult backdrop and pricing pressure. And the social names are all getting a nice pop today. Snap, Pinterest, Twitter, and Meta still seem, every time we say it, have to get used to it. Meta up 2.4%. Look at Pinterest adding 5.5% right now. Snap up more than 4% today. Now let's get to the latest in Washington. It's a big day as the president gets ready to sign the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. Ahead of its passage, the EV charging companies have been on a tear, and Blink is one of the biggest gainers. Blink charging up today and up about 30% so far for the month of September, as you can see right here. Investors are optimistic about the $7.5 billion in the new bill for a nationwide build-out of EV chargers. There you can see the number. The Department of Energy says we have more than 100,000 charging stations, but the goal is to have more than 500,000 by 2030. With me now, Michael Farkas, the CEO of Blink Charging, and a first on CNBC interview. Mike, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Thank you for having me again. So I I guess to me, $7.5 billion doesn't sound like a lot of money for a a build-out of EV chargers, but there's so many companies that are willing to put private capital to work here. So how much will the government funds help kind of pop the number? How high do you think it's going to go? It will definitely help. Um, I don't know if it will get us to the 500,000 number that the administration is looking for, Without a question, it'll really give um, some wind at the back of this space. What is Blink's personal goal in terms of charging expansion? To own as many um, charging stations that we possibly can. Our business is quite different than some of our competitors. We actually own and operate a lot of the equipment that we, uh, that we deploy. Um, some of our competitors just sell hardware or provide networking services. We believe in the long term of this business, and we want to make recurring revenues off of the sale of the fuel. Yeah, we're going to speak with the... Uh, CEO of Siemens USA in just a moment. They also have big goals to deploy charging technology. You mentioned some of the competitors, names like ChargePoint, maybe do a little bit different business. Why are you committed to doing 
um, sort of this approach to the rollout of EV charging stations in the U.S.? Um, as with all hardware um, and with most uh, services, they become commoditized after a while. Um, we believe that this is about a land grab, making sure that we have the locations that we have under long-term contracts that are exclusive where we provide EV charging services. Um, it, it's a very broad term. Um, when we sign an agreement with a property owner, we have the exclusive rights to provide EV charging services at those locations. So whether it's a scooter, an e-bike, an e-motorcycle, uh, a Rivian or a Tesla that you're going to drive in, or even in the future when you're going to be flying in on electrically powered drones, we have the exclusive rights to provide EV charging services at the entire location. It's not about a parking spot that's at that location. It's about the entire address. Um, our competitors have a little bit of a different approach. They want to sell a piece of equipment, get instant gratification. We realize it's about investing our dollars today, controlling those locations. And as uh, utilization increases, we have the rights to go in there and, and add additional units as, de as demand requires. Sure. So I'm curious, I, I don't know if you guys have gotten the details yet, but when we talk about the funds the government is spending here, let's make EVs a case study. Do you get money directly? Do you have any idea how those funds will be distributed? Yes. Um, unlike our competitors, we actually have a direct advantage because it subsidizes our costs in deploying equipment that we own and operate. In, additional, in addition, we sell hardware to others. Um, so it'll really, really help that market as well. Um, we're not going to own every piece of equipment out there. We want to own as much as we can. But we're also realistic. There are others who want to control um, that process for their customers, their clients, their tenants. Um, so we have a model where we um, supply others with our equipment, our networking services. But our main focus is owning and operating. And because of these, these uh, funds being distributed by um, the Biden administration, this directly impacts our business. Um, in the past, we've had grants where um, we would put up a dollar um, and then we would be reimbursed 80 cents um, for that deployment. Um, that's basically buying a dollar for two dimes. So is this how are these incentives structured then and how does it uh, make what you're doing cheaper if that's what it's doing? Well, it's not making it cheaper. We still have the cost of deploying the hardware. What it does is it subsidizes um, the cost of getting that equipment in the ground. Um, it, it takes our dollar and stretches it to five for the most part. Most of the programs are typically you go out there, you find the location, you install the charging stations, you petition the, the grant or rebate authorities, and then you get a reimbursement after the entire project is done. That's typically how it's worked in the past, and we believe that to be the case in the future. Um, it, there's no question it's going to put a tremendous amount of wind in our backs, not only ours, um, all of the EV charging infrastructure companies. You know, when you understand the scale of this, and, and, and Blink is a global company, um, you know, we mentioned about having about 100,000 chargers um, in the U.S. That's not charging stations. There's a difference between charging stations, which people view as gas stations, where mm -hmm. you have multiple chargers at that location, and a charging station, which is a charging port or a port that you can plug your car into. Um, the administration is talking about, you know, charging stations like gas stations, where you'll have multiple um, chargers at those facilities. Um, when we reach the talking about a hundred thousand dollar number, a hundred thousand unit number, um, th that's not multiple charges at locations. Um, but when you look at it from a global basis, and I mentioned uh, Blink is a global company, um, where we are today and where we need to be by 2030 is you have a few hundred thousand um, charging stations, um, public ones globally, um, and, and collectively um, by 2030. Um, you need about 120 million chargers wow. available for people to fuel their car. So when you're looking at this business, it's 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 you know it's not even at its infancy. It's it's at an embryonic phase. Wow. Um, and, and we've been lucky enough to be here. Um, now we're entering our 13th year. This is not something new for us. Um, we were the pioneers in this space. 
we were the first consolidators in this industry. Um, if you look at Blink, Blink consists of about 10, 11 different companies that we've acquired um, since since our founding. And we're going to be growing organically um, as well as through M&A activity. And, and it's not only here in the U.S., but this is really a, a global opportunity. Fascinating. And that that gives us the scale. So it's great to have you on today, Michael. And uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Michael Farkas is the CEO of Blink Charging. Now to Siemens, which is another company that stands to benefit from the infrastructure bill. They're also involved in the EV charging space, but also for infrastructure for buildings and mobility solutions for rail and road transport. They operate in more than 200 countries, including China. Barbara Humpton is the Siemens USA CEO. She joins me live in front of the White House, where she'll attend today's signing ceremony. Barbara, welcome. It's great to have you on today. And this bill is broad and that's what you wanted right it's not just literally for bridges it is kelly it's great to be with you and it's so fantastic to be here for the signing today we have long been supporting the concept of this infrastructure bill and we congratulate the administration and the bipartisan effort in congress that led to this moment this is truly a glorious day for the american people explain siemens exposure to ev charging Yes, uh, Siemens. Yeah, first of all, let me just say we were built for this moment. Uh, Siemens has been here in the United States for 160 years, really focused on the infrastructure that has been the backbone of the economy here. Everything from the work of industry to infrastructure of all kinds, buildings, transportation, etc. When it was clear that we would see the electrification of vehicles, uh, we quickly turned our know-how in electrification to the problem and have brought the capability to manufacture EV charging stations here to the U.S. And recently we made the commitment to, to manufacture another million charging stations here over the next four years. So this is an exciting moment. Oh, interesting. So you guys are literally manufacturing the charging stations, which is an important piece of the EV rollout, obviously, we should all be thinking about. So tell us how this would change from a leader point of view, are you hiring immediately with these funds? When do you expect these funds to hit your bottom line? Well, we actually think this is going to take a whole ecosystem. The most exciting thing about all of this is that this is going to bring in the state and local, the utility, business and businesses who need to make decisions about this transformation. So yes, we're gonna be working, bringing our technology to stakeholders in every single one of those areas. And to get ready for that, we've actually begun workforce development. At our location in Wendell, North Carolina, we've teamed with Wake, Tech Wake Technical Community College to create an apprenticeship program. I mean, we're at that point where reaching into high schools, getting kids interested in the kind of work they could be doing as we drive this transformation, it means that we can tailor programs to their academic backgrounds and their schedules and bring them into the workplace, provide them the skills they need to be able to contribute in this building field of manufacturing. Although I suspect you probably had that in place before today. <laughs> and maybe this kind of builds on that. When I hear stakeholders, I get nervous that that process is going to take a while to play out. So maybe you can give an example of how, you know, these funds will really hit the road, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there is already, as you've noted with your other guests, there is quite a bit of capital already being deployed. So we have already, for instance, deployed 75,000 charging stations across the United States with various customers. What we're most bullish about is the idea of utilities being key players in this transformation. So yes, we know that there, it will take time for the funds to make their way in, you know, in allocations out into the states for states to work through their process to assure this goes to the appropriate stakeholders. We're going to be working side by side with those stakeholders to expedite all of that. 
And it's interesting that this signing is happening, Barbara, the day after the COP26 summit more or less is concluding. What is the tangible outcome of that giant meeting for the U.S., for these same projects that you're already involved in? You know, it seems like the utilities are where a lot of these pledges are already most going into effect, because even at the state level, you have states like Virginia and I think either Illinois or Indiana already moving to net zero. So, you know, is that where the biggest change is happening? Uh, there is quite a bit of change going on, Kelly, and I was very, very honored to be part of a delegation that was in Scotland last week and had the opportunity to observe the, the negotiations. One thing is crystal clear. This goes well beyond the capability of governments in setting aspirations. This is a moment when businesses step forward and actually deploy our capital in ways that are constructive toward the end objectives of countries all around the world, what we all agree needs to be done. So my colleagues at Siemens Energy have been deploying wind power, and in Virginia, they just commissioned a new site for manufacturing there. We have the opportunity all across the country to be building new renewable energy, more sustainable manufacturing locations. And we will see this transformation being driven very much as much by business as by government. Sure. And we're going to talk a little bit later on about Royal Dutch Shell, uh, the company, for, company formerly known as. So certainly some big changes already. Barbara, thanks for your time today. And we'll look for you later on. Great to see you, Kelly. Barbara Bye. Humpton is the CEO of Siemens USA. Still ahead, the persistence of COVID. With colder weather seeing an increase in cases, what's the fallout for air travel and who will win out in the battle between homes and hotels? We'll explore that. Plus, Motor Trend just named the Lucid Air its car of the year. The EV startup reports after the bell today. We have a preview of that. Plus, Home Depot and Walmart before the bell tomorrow morning. It's all coming up in earnings exchange. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release. With Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The holiday travel season is right around the corner, but there are some serious headwinds looming for both passengers and big industry players. Meg Terrell is tracking the rise of COVID cases in some parts of the country. CNBC.com's Leslie Josephs is looking at airlines gearing up for a busier and costlier holiday season. And Seema Modi is crunching the numbers on why Airbnb may not be the most cost-effective travel option. Meg, let's start with you and the spike in cases. 
Hey, Kelly. Yeah, it's not news we wanted to see. After that spike in September, we were hoping that that decline would continue, but unfortunately, it plateaued and now has started to tick up a little bit nationally. If you look at those numbers, they're up about 11%. This is daily cases. Over the past two weeks, we're now averaging more than 80,000 cases per day here in the U.S. In terms of deaths, uh, we are averaging more than 1,100 per day in the United States. Now, regionally, this is really different. In the South, of course, they saw that huge peak and that that's come down a lot. So transmission is a lot lower there. But you're really seeing um, states in the Midwest, like Minnesota, starting to get hit really hard. We've heard about Colorado, of course, and the worries about hospital capacity there. Uh, the governor urging everybody over 18 who's at least six months out from their Pfizer or Moderna vaccines to go get a booster. Uh, so there are concerns mounting around the country. And this, of course, comes as we're seeing that surge across Europe. Austria today uh, announcing a lockdown for people who are unvaccinated. That, as they're reaching record numbers of cases, doubling in the last two weeks. That's the orange line there. Germany also under a lot of concern, other countries in Europe as well. Uh, but the message we're really hearing is it's the folks who are unvaccinated getting hit the hardest in those countries. Kelly? But what is driving the increase in cases? Is it a different variant? Um, it just seems almost mathematically that as more and more of the population, like the kids get vaccinated, that sort of the vector would change. And I, I just didn't expect it to be going higher. It's just interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not a new variant. Delta is about 100% of uh, the cases here in the United States. Wow. Um, it's basically just Delta making its way around the country in terms of the waves. You know, in the South, it went up and came down. Now we're seeing it hit the Midwest. This is the way this virus has been acting the entire time, and it continues to do so. Uh, but we are seeing the hardest hit impacts in areas with the least vaccination rates. Very interesting. Meg, thanks for now. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell, let's turn to how the airlines are preparing for what's sure to be a busier, but a busier, I should say, but also costlier and now riskier travel season. CNBC.com airline reporter Leslie Josephs is here with that story. Leslie, it would have been a simpler story in many ways if it were just COVID's receding, but how are they going to handle the surge? And now it's like they have a travel surge and they have some COVID spikes and, it, you know, all of these problems with labor shortages. It sounds like kind of a mess right now. Yeah, it is a mix of good news and bad news. What we saw with the TSA data, the screenings at airports on Sunday, we've recovered 90% of the ground compared with 2019. And that's that's pretty remarkable. We weren't saying that or any, seeing any numbers near that a year ago. Uh, but at the same time, it's costing airlines more to fly those passengers and fuel along with labor costs uh, are one of their, or, or their biggest uh, expenses. So that's an issue for them. And that's going to be weighing on their bottom line. We've heard warnings like that from Delta Airlines Airlines, recently from Frontier Airlines. So they're trying to balance that out. Um, the good news is that things are going in the right direction in terms of bookings. Airline CEOs said that holiday bookings are coming in really strong. We've seen data from Adobe recently saying that some of the Thanksgiving bookings compared with two years ago are even higher uh, than those wow. levels. So a lot of people booked up and, and ready to get out, but it is going to cost airlines more to fly those passengers. And likely going to be uh, the two of us and many millions of other people who are paying for that higher fuel eventually. And I'm also thinking about, you know, those who are traveling. I know certain cases, you know, maybe Wednesday and Sunday. And if there are these widespread cancellations, that butterfly effect, I don't know what to call it, but where that could create a lot of problems because of there's not easy backups and that sort of thing. And which was the pilots union that just voted down the option to, I think, take higher pay for showing up to work the holiday weekend? They said the number wasn't high enough, I guess. 
Well, they're looking for some more permanent fixes to how American Airlines is, is booking. So what we've seen in degrees of success, airlines are trying to chase as many dollars as they can after really bruising 2020. Um, but they have had to also staff up and some of the airlines have not been at the levels that they needed to be. And when you have things that are pretty routine, like bad weather that can cause some cancellations, you do tend to see it snowball. It is a little too early to tell. Uh, Thanksgiving is still you know, several days out uh, what's going to happen. But we're seeing Southwest Airlines and American Airlines offer incentives to employees, whether frequent flyer miles, bonuses, flight attendants in America getting up to triple pay for holiday trips, wow. um, as long as perfect attendance. So those things don't happen again. And what we've heard from analysts is that it costs them, costs the airlines even more when they have the disruptions than to kind of go out these additional incentives. Exactly. Uh, makes sense. Leslie, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Leslie Josephs. And once travelers get to where they're going, finally, will they be staying at a hotel or a vacation home rental? The math may be changing. Seema Modi is here with the cost to check in. Seema? Hey, Kelly, that's right. So the cost of a vacation home is nearly twice as expensive as a hotel room, averaging $253 a night. That's up about 20% compared to 2019 levels. Bookings for short-term rentals continue to accelerate, reaching the highest growth rate since the onset of the global pandemic, according to AirDNA. And the rebound as travel is not the only reason prices are going up. Staffing, supply shortages, uh, higher cleaning fees, maintenance, co maintenance costs for homeowners putting more pressure on property managers. It's one of the reasons more owners are turning to companies like uh, Vacasa, which manages rental apartments. It's now valued at $4.5 billion, and it is set to go public via a SPAC in the coming weeks, as is Sonder, which has a $1.9 billion valuation. Now, of the three publicly listed home rental platforms, Booking Holdings charges the highest commission, so it is collecting a larger percentage per home. But BTIG analyst Jake Fuller still says that Airbnb has the strongest pricing power in this home rental market, and he does not see higher prices derailing the travel recovery this holiday season, Kelly. But the big question is January 1st, when companies start to require employees to come back in. Hmm. That worker who was staying at an Airbnb because he or she could, could work remotely, uh, how that changes uh, booking trends. Great point. Year. Is there like a kayak of all these different vacation home rental platforms because it's dizzying. It is. It's, it's still segregated. So you, if you want to book an Airbnb, you got to get on Airbnb. Uh, you know, same for Verbo. You go on there. And that's why there's really not a Best Buy where you have a, a showroom to sort of look at all the different prices. That would be a great opportunity. But again, these other professionally managed home rental platforms are becoming increasingly uh, popular because a lot of homeowners are saying, we want to rent out our home, but it's, it's so time consuming. Yeah getting that cleaner, getting that getting that toilet fixed, it's becoming harder because of this staffing shortage. So they're turning to the professional platform. That's a great point. So interesting. Seema, thank you as always, our Seema Modi. And still ahead, Royal Dutch Shell is ditching the Dutch and scrapping its dual share structure. And that's not all. We've got the full details ahead. Plus, this stock is on pace for its worst day ever after falling short of Wall Street estimates. The soggy name coming up after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. 
To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back, everybody. Let's take a quick check on markets, which are struggling to hang on to positive territory. The Dow is still up about 25, but the S&P has turned negative and the Nasdaq is still down 32. And here are some of the movers we're watching. Splunk shares are going splat despite revenues coming in above analyst estimates. They're announcing the immediate departure of the CEO, saying they're focused on identifying a leader with a proven track record of scaling operations and growing multi-billion dollar enterprises. It's been a tough go for Slack, down another 19 percent today. It's its worst day in nearly a year. But that's not the one we teased. Only was the mystery soggy stock we showed you before the break. Shares plunging after they reported a wider than expected loss in the third quarter. The Altmilk company also issued a revenue warning for the year, citing a quality issue of one of its plants. They say it'll result in the destruction of inventory and lost sales in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Only is down almost 23% today. It's worst day since going public in May. Shares are trading below $10. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Media mogul Barry Diller taking the stand to defend against accusations that his company, IAC, cheated the founders of Tinder out of billions of dollars. Diller denying the allegations. He also challenged testimony by Tinder founder Sean Rad that IAC has a history of using corrupted valuations of companies it buys. InfoWars host Alex Jones losing a fourth libel suit over claims that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax. The judge found Jones guilty by default for failing to turn over documents to the court. Trials to determine how much the host owes the families of victims are set for next year. And as Meg mentioned a little earlier in the show, Austria implementing a nationwide lockdown for unvaccinated people who have not recently had COVID-19. Police are enforcing rules that prohibit the unvaccinated from leaving home, except for basic activities, including working and grocery shopping. And on the news, Shep will talk COVID guidelines for the holidays with Dr. Anthony Fauci. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Well, a tug of war between tech and rates ever since the Fed's last meeting. A five-star fund manager joins me next with his top picks and why he's staying bullish. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Since the Fed announced the taper at its last meeting, it's been a standoff between tech and bond yields. Despite the widely held view that rising rates will be bad news for the sector, my next guest says the positive momentum in tech will continue. Joining me with his top tech plays is Mike Lippert. He's portfolio manager of the Barron Opportunity Fund. The five-star Morningstar Fund has a blockbuster uh, 2020, a total return of 88%. Top holdings, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, and NVIDIA all soaring this year. Well, all except Amazon. Mike, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So a lot of those are, I mean, this is the, the challenge with your sector right now, right? I mean, you own the biggest stuff in the market, multi-trillion dollar companies. Do you just let it ride? I mean, do you see anything else that can really move the needle for you guys for the next 12 months? Yeah, well, the answer is yes, of course. When you see what's at the top of our portfolio, but we have, you know, very significant investments in companies that are less household names, whether it's a Zoom info, a HubSpot, Ceridian Software, 
that you know also really influence our, our long-term returns. Can those companies ever get to the size and scale of the major players, or was that a one-time 2010s phenomenon? Listen, I don't think it's a one-time phenomenon. You know, when you're talking about a company reaching a trillion-dollar market cap, or you know, some now at two trillion, it, it's very, very hard to do. But you know, when, as long-term investors, we try to find companies that can grow faster for longer, that they have a significant market opportunity, and they have sustainable competitive advantages such that they can capture that market opportunity. We think often about companies that have second or third acts. They have multiple TAMs. And the great companies of the world, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, they all have that. Um, Tesla and NVIDIA, they have that. And even smaller companies, they have the same thing. They may have you know, smaller opportunities than the Goliaths, but we look for companies that can do it again and again and again and keep that growth going for longer. Because when you think about the best growth investments, literally over the last 20 years, these are really companies that could grow faster for longer. Remember, Amazon started out as a bookseller. Right. No one expected they would be what they are today. Yeah, a cloud giant and all the rest of it. Why isn't Facebook on this list or Meta, sorry? Um, I, there were definitely some issues with Facebook that are really you know, hard to figure out exactly where they will go. Hmm. So um, you know, where they are in you know, the public, where they are with regulatory issues, um, the impact that IDFA will have on them. And so we have significant investments in, you know, what I'll call digital advertising, digital media. Um, we just don't have an investment in, uh, in Facebook today. Understood. Two more specific names I want to ask you about. One, obviously, is Tesla, because it's pulled back below 1,000 a share. And I wonder if you think that makes it an attractive entry point, but also if you think there's any chance they can grow anything like what they've done compounding to investors over the past decade. You know, listen, I think they're going to grow at a very, very fast rate for a very, very long time. Wow. Uh, we've been investors for Tesla at Barron since 2014. We've earned 25 times returns on our investments. So, you know, the stock is up 40% year to date, even with this pullback. Um, we definitely believe, and you guys have had Ron Barron on, on your show, that we believe the stock could be a $2,000 stock in years to come. And that is just on, you know, selling a lot of cars. That doesn't even include the option of what autopilot and autonomous driving can be what they could do with solar and battery storage, um, what they can do with things like um, robo-taxis and controlling those kinds of fleets. And so we see a lot of options in Tesla. And as you look over the next several years, they are going to sell as many cars as they can sell. They're going to continue to innovate on the battery technology. They continue to innovate on autonomous. And we've essentially crossed the chasm. We've moved from an ice world, sort of combustion engine world, to an EV world, and yeah. Tesla will be the leading player. In that Sell world. as many cars as they can make, really. Um, they and all the rest of them, probably. What about NVIDIA, which has just been an unbelievable story? I mean, uh, close to rivaling some of the best in business we've ever seen. So kind of a similar question with that one. How much longer do you expect it to grow the rate that it has been? Again, it's going to grow at a very, very high rate, exactly whether it will be what it, what it did in the last year. Who knows, right? There's a lot of factors that led to the growth that we've seen over the last year, something like 80% growth last quarter in their gaming business, 30, 40% growth in their data center business. But they're so early on against these TAMs. Um, you talked about, you know, the metaverse. I mean, we're in the in kind of the early innings of what gaming will one day be when we think of a world of the metaverse um, in terms of accelerated computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all these great code words that people love. But we're just, again, in the early innings of that. Computers are helping human beings make better decisions. When you go to shop, 
You want the company that you're shopping on, let's say an Amazon, to make recommendations to you. When you're watching a video, you want to have recommendations. And, you know, our car driving us, all of this stuff is based on AI and ML. And NVIDIA is the leading platform for that with not just chips and not just service systems, but also all the software that they have, which I think is is what's you know really exciting about the latest chapter of the NVIDIA story. Very interesting. A final question that's not quick, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is when everybody says value is going to outperform now that rates are re-rating and inflation and all the rest of it, what's your answer? Do you, do you welcome that and say, great, I'll buy everything that I can? Or would it really, could it possibly be like a decade-long headwind for tech stocks? It's almost impossible to know. I mean, we've, we've looked very, very carefully at the impact that interest rates have on valuations and stocks. And in the short term, we've seen moves earlier this year. And then if people got spooked by the moves that we saw in February and March, they would have missed a lot of gains later in the year. I truly believe what I said at the beginning is the key to long-term investing. Find those businesses that can grow faster for longer and at the end of the day, produce a lot of earnings and, and free cash. So if you find those businesses, you're going to do very well in the market. All right, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Mike Lippert with the Barron Opportunity Fund. Still ahead, Lucid Sedan is Motor Trend's 2022 Car of the Year. Will its results after the bell also drive good news? Home Depot has beaten EPS 19 out of the past 20 quarters, but shares have a history of falling post-earnings. We'll see if that happens this time around. And Walmart could post big gains in grocery, but how will inflation impact its profit margins? We have all the key numbers to watch and how to position for these after and before the bell results right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange, where we bring you the action, the story, and the trade on upcoming reports. Today's names are Lucid Motors, Home Depot, and Walmart. And let's start with Lucid, which is set to report after the bell for the first time after delivering its first vehicle last month. That car, the Lucid Air, was just named Motor Trend's 2022 Car of the Year. And get this, it's the first time an automaker has won the award for its very first car. Lucid shares are up 84% in the past month as investors pile into the EV trade. Let's bring in our own Phil LeBeau with what to watch, along with Todd Gordon, who's Inside Edge Capital founder and a CNBC contributor. He'll give us our trades today. Todd, welcome. Phil, earnings. Wait, are there going to be any? No, and, and I think, well, look, we're just seeing these guys start up production. Their first deliveries were at the end of October. So you're looking at really basically close to pre-revenue. Uh, so the earnings, the numbers are not going to be what drives this stock. It's going to be the commentary uh, from the company when they talk about what are they expecting in terms of being able to ramp up and meet the production goals that are out there. They've got reservations for about 13,000 uh, Lucid Airs. And the first ones that are being delivered right now, Kelly, these are limited first edition Lucid Air Dream models. So we're talking the very highest of the high-end versions of the Lucid Air. And so the question becomes, once you get past this and you start to ramp up production next year, will you be able to meet your goal of let's say 20,000 vehicles being sold next year and then move up from there? That's really gonna be what's driving the stock. All right, Ty, we used to always hear people say about Tesla that they loved the car but didn't love the stock. Maybe they were wrong in the long run on that. What do you think about Lucid? What's the trade? It's tough. Pre-revenue, I think they have 13. 
for this Lucid Air. This is the car that was Motor Trend's car of the year. It's really, really amazing. They're they're going after this kind of luxury, high-end uh, target audience. It's a high-performance car. It starts at 75000 I think the one they tested in Motor Trend was $170,000. Uh, so certainly not three level. 520 mile uh, range, and this thing has like 1,100 horsepower. I don't know what you do with that. Uh, they say it's a very efficient car, though. They have about 111 to 130 miles per gallon equivalency. That's like taking you know combustible engine miles per gallon uh, and comparing it to the other models. They have a higher uh, mile per gallon equivalent than Tesla as well as Audi and Porsche. So it was reviewed very well. The chart broke out. Uh, 29 was obviously the breakout. Hasn't looked back since. I don't own it. I own Tesla. Uh, very large valuation for a company that hasn't delivered uh, maybe 500 cars right now. So very expensive. Uh, Ford earnings and the Ford multiple is too much for me. I'm going to watch. If we get a pullback, I'll consider it, but not right now. All right. And we'll see, Phil. So it's five, their goal is deliver, to deliver 500 this year, 20,000 next year. Is that right? Correct. Correct. And and so, again, it's all about the ramp up in production, Kelly. It's one thing to produce your first editions, which are spectacular. And nobody's arguing that the Lucid Air Dream model is not spectacular. And the Motor Trend Award speaks to that. The question becomes, if you're an investor, can they meet the production goals that have been outlined over the next couple of years? All right. Phil Lebeau, thank you very much, sir. And a quick programming note, Lucid Motors CEO Peter Rawlinson will be on Mad Money with Jim Cramer tomorrow at 6 p.m. or so Eastern time. You definitely don't want to miss it. Next, we'll go to Home Depot, the retailer that got a huge boost from the housing boom and is at at-home DIY trends. It's up 40% this year. Analysts are still bullish. There's only one sell rating. And according to FactSet, can Home Depot keep shelves stocked and prices low as we head into the holiday season? Courtney Reagan is here with the story. Courtney, what are people looking for? Hi, Kelly. You know, most of these home trends that we've seen during the pandemic are still really holding strong, whether it's remodeling or home decor, both areas that, of course, Home Depot plays really well in. And so I think expectations are pretty high. And remember, usually when Home Depot reports their earnings, you don't see the stock move a whole lot. If anything, you almost see it go backwards. Some people sort of taking down some profits. These valuations are pretty hefty right now for both Home Depot and competitor lows going into this. The Christmas season has become an even bigger season for these home improvement retailers than it was in the past. It used to be the spring was their most important time. Now Black Friday has been Home Depot's biggest day ever. So still really important there. Margins are going to be in focus with all of these pressures from the supply chain and inflation. And so that is going to be very key. And the stock action could hang on what those results are. All right. The shares are down about half a percent today, up 12 percent in the past three months. Todd, what would you do with them? Again, Kelly, in this one, I don't own it. Missed this breakout. Uh, just speaking generally to the consumer discretionary space, uh, that's the sector right now that's leading. I heard you mention that in the last segment. Consumer discretionary and then technology leading the overall sector makeup right here. Uh, consumer discretionary led by autos, no surprise. But as Courtney said, despite the concerns with uh, uh, to the uh, with higher food and energy costs, the consumers are still spending. Uh, we just saw the personal savings rate drop down about seven and a half. Those are levels that we haven't seen uh, right before the pandemic. So consumers are not saving. They're spending. Um, consumer credit broke uh, to a new high this year. So I'm wondering if people are spending not on those do-it-yourself at-home projects that benefited Home Depot on those, but other trips and things that we couldn't do last year. They did see uh, in the last quarter uh, margins soften. 
you know, obviously we've got higher input costs, we've got all the other supply chain issues, uh, and new housing starts leveled off. They're right about one and a half million month over month. We haven't gotten above pre-pandemic highs, and look what Zillow just did. So maybe the housing market's off a little bit here with input costs. I don't own it. I missed this big breakout. Keep an eye on it, but kind of, kind of, this earnings report. Courtney, quick follow-up on this point. So they won't be able to give us any early sort of in-the-moment uh, data points, right? They, we, should we imagine they'll hold off on any, making any commentary right now? Actually, I will say that usually on the conference call, they'll give us a little bit of an indication as to how things are trending in the current quarter. And that is often when you see a stock price move after mm -hmm. the release is out, that's usually when you see it. All right. I'm, I need you to put that into like teams or something when that happens. For those of us okay, I'll who don't have the TV on. <laughs> All right, finally, a consumer bellwether, Walmart. Shares are flat on the year, despite noting the consumer is coming out of hibernation, as Walmart's seen slowing e-commerce growth, but an increase in in-store sales. That's what they told us last quarter. What will they have to say about the consumer now? Corey, I'll go back to you on this with, I, I guess, the most notable thing being the flatness in the stock price this year. Yeah, you know, remember, of course, Walmart is a consumer staple and it's humongous, Kelly. When you look at the revenue size, it takes an awful lot to move this stock much sharply. So I think expectations are pretty high for Walmart. They're going to be continuing to post those in-store or same-store sales that keep growing and growing in the United States. Very key. Remember, they've got, what, three quarters or so, maybe a little bit less than that is done in food. Very important for repeat shopping. And of course, the holiday season, always important, especially when you've got consumers concerned about inflation and supply chain challenges. If anybody can navigate those two things better than anyone else, it's Walmart. Yeah, it'll be fun to kind of compare and contrast them. And I should mention this is before the bell tomorrow morning. Um, Todd, on Walmart, why are you waiting? It's at 146 today. You're looking more for 155. Yeah, Courtney yeah, just hit it. Uh, the stock has been range bound for all year. Uh, it, it, that's, that's a lot of opportunity costs in a market that's significantly moving higher. You look at competitors like Target and Costco. Look what happened to Dollar Tree. Uh, this stock you know, can be used as a bit of a hedge. It's got a 1.5% dividend. Uh, if we do get a downturn, it is a nice trading hedge. Uh, as Courtney said, they are seeing strong gains, however, in groceries and grocery delivery. Uh, domestic food is a big component of their sales, so not subject to supply chain issues, as Courtney mentioned. Amazon uh, is, a, is a big threat. They are actually opening physical stores. I think they opened 11 plans for about 30 with these Amazon fresh stores. So they're going to have competition there. Uh, their operating expenses in Walmart were, were expecting for the research I did to go up about 5% with shipping costs, input, and labor. Uh, but UBS did an interesting report, report saying that they can handle the supply chain bottlenecks better than most. Uh, they are making an effort to go more into the cloud, which should help margins. Uh, but again, opportunity cost for being in this, in, in again, a market, uh, Kelly, that growth is outpacing value at the largest degree. Look at the comparison between these two ETFs. There's better opportunity costs to be long, better names than Walmart right now. All right. We will leave it there. Todd, thanks so much. Todd Gordon with our trades today. And Courtney, we'll see you for all these reports bright and early tomorrow morning. <laughs> our Courtney Reagan with the action. Up next, we've got a look at big moves in two medical device makers. And as we head to break, check out shares of Vita Coco. They're getting six bullish coverage initiations today. They're up 30% already since that IPO late October. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody. We're watching sharp moves in two medical device makers. Spinal surgery equipment maker Nuvasive is jumping on several reports that Globus Medical has reached the company with an acquisition offer. Globus sliding about 7.5%. Nuvasive is up about 6%. The talks are said to be preliminary, and a deal is not certain. Still ahead, Royal Dutch Shell is ditching the Dutch, moving its headquarters to London, and doing a whole lot more behind the scenes. We'll get what's behind the move and the response from the Netherlands right after this. Welcome back. Royal Dutch Shell is heeding London's call and getting ready to move its tax head office to Britain from the Netherlands. It will also end its dual share structure and make a host of other moves. Brian Sullivan joins us with more on what's behind this move just a day after COP26 pretty much ended, Brian. Yeah, and this is the bigger story than it may seem on the surface, Kelly. You read your, your headlines like, oh, who cares? Well, it's a big deal. I'll tell you why. Royal Dutch Shell, as I'm calling it, pulled a Unilever. That's another Dutch company that made the same move to the UK earlier this year. Now, this is not a done deal yet. It is subject to a shareholder vote, and there are reports the Dutch government is panicking. In fact, there is a parliamentary address scheduled for Monday. This is the biggest company in the Netherlands and one of its oldest, roots going back to 1890. Now, also, it's going to kill its dual share structure. They had one trading in London, one trading in Amsterdam or an A and B. Now they're going to just combine it in London, Amsterdam, US, but under one share. I'll get to why in a moment. Now, if they move their tax headquarters, some say, who can blame them? Here's kind of a recent rundown of what's happened. Now, Shell and other fossil fuel companies are constantly beaten up by the Eurozone and the Dutch government. There's a 15% tax on its A shares, but not on its B shares. But the government limits the number of B shares Shell can buy back. So investors are frustrated. They can't buy back as much of their own stock as they would like. You had a court ruling in May pushing them to decarbonize faster than they had planned. They're appealing that ruling. And last month, a huge Dutch pension fund said it is dumping all shares of Royal Dutch Shell. So in other words, the company, Kelly, kind of taking a body blow from all sides. I have a couple of questions. Is this a win for Brexit? I was just in the UK last week, as you know. City is booming. New office towers everywhere. Looks like they might be welcoming a bunch of new highly paid Shell employees into the city of London. This would be a huge blow to the Netherlands if another one of its biggest and oldest companies decides to leave. Absolutely. Brian, the point that you make about the attractiveness of the UK is interesting. The Hague did rule that their scope three emissions would have to be cut by 45 percent. So could this be a way to get out of it? Because this company seems to embody the green transition in a way. I mean, at least of the oil majors. And maybe I'm wrong about that. No, you are right. You are right. And they're doing it. They're sold off their Texas land as well. They're making some changes. But you got to understand, you've got some mid-level electric bureaucrats in, the, in, in Europe, Kelly, who are basically saying, you need to do this at this speed. They know nothing about business. They don't run the company. And they're telling companies what to do. And guess what? Those companies, maybe like a Royal Dutch Shell, are going to vote with their feet. And by the way, the company will no longer be called Royal Dutch Shell. They're going to just be called Shell. This is like... I mean, if there was a company with American in its name that's been around for 130 but years Brian, and they moved to Montreal, Canada, here's it's a big deal. My question, if they were to go to the U.K., couldn't they still face massive pressure to reduce emissions? It's not like they'd be going to Texas. <laughs> no, maybe they would or should. Yeah, but it's not the same. The U.K. with Brexit makes its own rules now. They yeah. are not subject to EU rules. A bunch of people in, you know, Brussels 
making decisions for companies that aren't even based in the countries they represent. Hmm. It's a big deal. It's really interesting. No, it's a really great explainer, Brian. We appreciate it. Brian Sullivan this afternoon. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.